Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm William Rogerberg, a member of Ask Me 6000. Thank you to all our listeners. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Rebecca Meyer-Rao of Worker Justice Wisconsin. Today we'll talk about evictions in Madison, an update on OPEIU Local 39 and their negotiations, and the agreement between IBEW Local 2304 and MGNE, and a lot more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Housing is unaffordable for many people in Dane County. The end of the pandemic moratorium on evictions and pandemic-related renter's assistance monies has resulted in an increase in evictions. Labor Radio spoke to Heidi Wegleitner, a member of UAW 2320 National Organization of Legal Services Workers and a union staff member at the Legal Action of Wisconsin's Madison office. She represents renters in housing disputes with their landlords with a focus on eviction defense in subsidized housing matters. There's an increase in evictions right now. Can you tell us why that is? We're seeing rents increase at significant rates. People just can't afford their housing and there is no longer this really important program to help folks afford their rent and deal with the kind of financial instability that COVID created. But even before COVID, there were many folks in our state, in our community, in our country that could not afford their housing. Why is that? Wages haven't kept up with the cost of living. I think you need to make $26 an hour to afford a two-bedroom apartment in the Madison area low wages, as well as lack of worker protections and benefits like paid sick leave factor into people's housing insecurity. The federal housing budget was significantly decreased in the early 80s when Reagan became president. And since that time, there's been a huge shortage of federally supported affordable housing in our area. For every 100 people that may qualify for low-income housing, there's only like 20 openings. Every three or five years, our public housing agencies, which administer locally our federal housing programs like Section 8 and like public housing, open up a lottery system to take new people on their wait list. A lottery means not everybody can even get on that wait list. It's a crisis. Housing is inaccessible for many folks, particularly low-income folks. And we know disproportionately those are people of color in Dane County and across this country. What are some solutions, in your opinion? Certainly, legal actions, low-income clients would benefit from more available housing they can afford. And from housing that is accessible to them, even if they have some adverse rental history or credit history. How can listeners 
get more information about this topic? There's a lot of information on the Dane County Housing Initiative and Regional Housing Strategy website that talks about the housing needs in Dane County, the data, as well as some of the solutions. In terms of the eviction crisis, Eviction Lab is a great resource for folks to understand how evictions affect our country, affect their jurisdiction, and how that stuff breaks down based on race and other demographic categories. If somebody's looking for housing or they're in a situation where they're in danger of being evicted, what are some things that they can think about doing? If you are in a situation where you need help with rent or you have a legal question or you have a landlord that's not fixing up your apartment, don't just wait on it. Document the problem. Reach out for help. The earlier you can get information on your rights and responsibilities and the earlier you can help to document the evidence related to your issue, the better off you're going to be in trying to assert your rights and protect yourself from unfair housing practices. The Eviction Defense and Diversion Partnership is a collaborative with the Tenant Resource Center, Community Justice Inc., the UW Law School's Eviction Defense Clinic, the People's Law Center, and Legal Action of Wisconsin. And it is able to provide folks who are in eviction court referrals for rent assistance, as well as free legal aid. That's what I do is help those folks that are in eviction court defend themselves from eviction. The Legal Actions Intake Line is 855-947-2529. That was Heidi Wegleitner of Legal Action of Wisconsin. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Few local unions are under the pressure faced by OPEIU Local 39. Local 39 of the Office and Professional Workers International Union is in negotiations with two of its largest employers. In both cases, negotiations are stalled. Negotiations at True Stage, formerly CUNA Mutual, have been underway since March of 2022 with no substantial progress, in spite of a 10-day unfair labor practice strike and the continuing and strong support of the membership. On Thursday, members will vote on the firm's last contract offer as a broadcast time, the results are not available, but all indications are that the membership will vote overwhelmingly to reject them. At Madison Gas and Electric, also negotiations are stalled. While there has been some discussion on relatively minor points, there have been no substantial progress of key issues of wages. As a negotiator said to Madison Labor Radio, quote, they, the company, hear us, they just don't care. The union concluded that wage proposals of MG&E were, quote, it was insulting, it was condescending, they implied that we are largely overpaid. It is important to note that at True Stage, MG&E and Madison Sourdough, the firms are employing the same tactics of delay and refusal to deal substantively with the needs of the workforce, along with the employment of anti-labor lawyers. If the firms really wanted to negotiate and reach timely and fair settlements, they would not employ such individuals. The workers at both MG&E and TrueStage are solidly behind their union. No matter what happens with those negotiations, MG&E and TrueStage, by their actions, may be showing the workforce that they hold them and their contributions in little regard and no respect. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. 
IBEW Local 2304 represents employees of Madison Gas and Electric. The union and the company have a tentative agreement ready for a vote by union members. Carol Whitell spoke to Nate Rasmussen. As the president and the uh, chair of the bargaining committee, I'm going to be recommending that our membership vote yes on this. Um, you know, some of our main concerns going into bargaining were recruitment and retention and um, making sure that we have a workforce to staff the work safely and uh, make sure that we're keeping the community lights on and gas flowing. And I think we did some things at the table uh, that uh, we're trying to address those concerns that we had. And uh, again, we'll take it to the membership to vote in about a week and a half and we'll see if we did enough. How many workers are covered by this agreement? We represent about 230 or 235 workers at MPE, and that's who's going to be under this contract. How will the negotiations wrap up and go into effect? Members will vote on this on Wednesday, August 30th. We're going to make it effective May 1, actually. Um, that's when our last uh, contract uh, expired. So uh, we are looking at retro pay uh, back to May 1st and having the contract date be effective May 1st. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Earlier this year, Madison Sourdough Bakery workers voted overwhelmingly to form a union. Now comes the hard part, winning a contract. Frank M. Speck has the story. In April, 65% of the workers at Madison Sourdough voted to unionize. Since then, workers have been in contract talks with management. Labor Radio spoke with Spencer Schlenkar, a baker at Sourdough and acting union organizer for Madison Sourdough United Workers. We asked them to describe the situation as of today. We are currently uh, at the bargaining table negotiating our first contract. As part of our bargaining process, we're actually not talking to uh, our main employer, Drew. When we're at the bargaining table, we're talking with Littler Mendelssohn, the law firm that the company retained. And uh, they're well known for helping companies to avoid unions. And if the workers do manage to unionize, to drag negotiations out indefinitely. So right now, we're pretty much talking to a union-busting attorney instead of the owner, Drew. And so our bargaining sessions have been short and infrequent. During this last session, we made a little bit of progress. We're trying to talk about things like safety and work-life balance with this attorney, but they don't know how hard it is to get enough sleep for a 10-hour shift that starts at 2 or 3 in the morning. Whereas ownership, Drew specifically, has worked these shifts. And if he were at the table, I think we could reach a fair contract. What are the union's demands? We want the job security, financial stability, work-life balance, and safety protections that we think should be standard in any workplace. And a lot of us have worked in restaurant jobs before, and it's a pretty rough industry to be a, a worker in. And so we want a lot of these things that will help us feel safe and confident to stay at Madison Sourdough, and we want those things in writing. Could you give an example of one of them a little bit more specifically? We are having a lot of issues with turnover right now, and uh, that's one of the reasons that you know this union drive started. And it's because there's not a lot of incentive to stay at Madison Sourdough. A lot of best people kind of hit this point where they're not really growing anymore at the bakery. And so one of the things that we would like to talk about is something like seniority rights 
or a retirement plan that can help keep people feeling like it's an okay place to work and to build a career at. Klinker emphasized that their next objective is to get the owner of the company to be at the table. Our next steps are trying to encourage Drew to be there because there's a lot of concessions that we know would be fair and we're just not seeing it from their attorney. Community support is crucial to the union's contract campaign. We think that people can help with that by, first of all, patronizing the business. Come buy a croissant or pastry or breakfast and bring kind notes for the workers or maybe a message for ownership saying that in order to be bargaining, we need to be at the table with the people who make these decisions. And people can also follow our social medias for updates. We are Madison Sourdough United Workers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have a bulletin board that we like to put up, like kind notes people have left in support of the workers, and we also like to leave them in the break room. We also have a mutual aid fund that you can find on our socials. This is to support each other in case somebody, for example, hurts himself and is unable to work for a few weeks and needs to make rent, or maybe they're... So that's a way that we can kind of help each other stay strong during hard times. And it can also act as a strike fund if the need arises. We thank Spencer Stinker for this interview. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. ProPublica is investigating and publishing stories about undocumented immigrants and Wisconsin's dependence on them. Carol Weidel reports. Wisconsin's dairy industry relies on undocumented immigrants, but the state won't let them legally drive. Reporters Melissa Sanchez and Maryam Jamil interviewed over 100 dairy workers in their investigation of the struggles of these dairy workers. This week, Douglas Haynes spoke to Melissa Sanchez on a public affair. Although there are no reliable statistics, Sanchez reports that the estimates of the number of workers is in the thousands. A lot isn't known. There aren't official counts of how many people are working. Um, and what farms, nobody tracks that, and people who are here illegally, undocumented workers, like, they're not going around, like, you know, checking off the undocumented box on, on labor records or census records. But that all said, there's uh, some recent estimates from UW put it in around 6,200 undocumented workers from Latin America on Wisconsin dairy farms. Jose's son was killed on a dairy farm outside Madison, which has since stopped farming. Nonetheless, he continues to work on a different dairy farm. He went to go work on a farm, I think near Arlington, and would drive in every, you know, for his shifts. He, he got an apartment near, near the farm, but in a town maybe 10 minutes away that the employer provided for, for him and other workers. And he got pulled over, I think, six or seven times in the six months after his son died. And he'd get pulled over, and I watched the dash cam video or the body cam video, and I pulled all the police reports and the court records. And he would he would just tell he would tell the officer, I can't. And the officer would say, you need to stop driving. You don't have a license. And Jose would say, I can't. I don't know how to get a license. I'm undocumented. How can I get a license? And the police officers couldn't help him. Um, and you know, the first ticket you get is typically $124 or $200, depending on what agency gives it to you. But then the cost goes up and up and up. And after you've gotten two or three tickets, it's it's uh, about $480 for the ticket, including court costs. And the court costs include a mandatory $200 DNA test. You have to pay every single time. 
While undocumented immigrants cannot legally drive, they can buy and register a vehicle. The state of Wisconsin, very hypocritically, or, you know, it's, this is a huge contradiction, but it allows undocumented people to buy a car and register their vehicle. And they can get those plates that say America's Dairyland on them legally, but but they can't drive. They can't, they, they can't get driver's licenses. And so when a cop pull, runs the plates of a, of a passing vehicle, they can see that the registered vehicle owner does not have a driver's license. And that gives them the pretext or the, the justification to make a stop and pull that person over. And how about the farmers that you talk to who are employing uh, immigrant workers who are not able to drive to go to the barber or go to the grocery or at least drive legally? What's the farmer's perspective that you've talked to? So we talked to about a dozen farmers and farmers don't say openly that they hire people who they know are undocumented. They all say that they simply accept the papers they are given. But at the same time, or like under the same breath, they will say that they are aware that their workers cannot get driver's licenses and they want the law to change. Wisconsin is one of 31 states that doesn't allow undocumented immigrants to drive. Across the board, people were really um, supportive of changing the law and allowing people to, to get driver's licenses. And then law enforcement was really interesting too. They they feel the same way, but for a different reason. They think that roads are less safe because undocumented people haven't been tested and trained on basic driving rules. Housing, where it is and how it's maintained is also widely variable. Immigrant workers live in shabby housing and some safe housing, but in the end, their lives are one of work and isolation. Nobody is tracking how many people live in employer-provided housing. That was stunning to me. It's, it's absolutely stunning. You have people living in, in homes with black mold and holes in the ceiling and like makeshift like little rooms. You have people living in, in great apartments too. There's farmers who do provide decent apartments for their workers. It's just it's just being human is like being able to be in community with people and like find love and people are, are isolated and, and and you know it's complicated because they do it by choice. They come here to work for, for whatever their personal reasons are. But they also wind up coming and living in, in this extreme isolation that they did not expect. ProPublica is telling the story of the workers we need and the rules that penalize them. Thanks to Douglas Haynes for excerpts of his interview. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. The president of the United Auto Workers called for a strike authorization vote this week, and he had some choice words for corporate America. Greg Jaboski has more. We're directing big free locals across the country to schedule a strike authorization vote as soon as possible and to communicate the results of the vote to the international by the end of the day on Thursday, August 24th. 
That was Sean Fain, the president since March of the United Auto Workers, the UAW, who on Tuesday addressed his union membership and the world in a live address on the International Union's Facebook page. The UAW's current contract with the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, Stellantis being the company once known as Chrysler Fiat, ends on September 14th. The call for a strike authorization vote, which gives permission to union leadership to call a strike on behalf of the rank and file, was expected. What differed in Tuesday's address from UAW presidents over the past few decades was its militance. As the UAW itself wrote in a July press statement, quote, In the past, bargaining began with a staged ceremony where UAW leaders shook hands with company CEOs. On Tuesday, Fane not only took on what the union considered the big three's inadequate proposals so far, but called out auto executives by name. GM has responded to our demands by, by saying that our demands for fair wages, cost of living, retirement security, and more paid time off are a threat to our collective future. Stellantis even went further. COO Mark Stewart wrote a patronizing letter to our members saying we need to tone down our demands in the name of economic realism. We later learned from media reports that Stewart wrote that letter from his second multi-million dollar mansion in Acapulco, Mexico, where he spent the last two weeks vacationing rather than bargaining. That's the economic realism the companies want us to accept. They make billions in profits and millions in executive salaries while the rest of us live paycheck to paycheck. Fain dismissed in detail the management argument that labor costs are driving up vehicle costs. The fact is, Labor costs are a fraction of what goes into the price of a car. The vast majority of the Big Three's expenses don't go to labor. They go to parts, retooling, distribution, repairs. Many experts estimate labor is just between 5 and 10% of the cost of a car. So in the past three years, according to the Washington Post, the cost of a new car has gone up by 20%. That's not because of labor cost. In the past year, Stellantis has had the highest profit margin of any major automaker out there, union or not, and that's not because of labor cost. As in the past months, the big three have cried about how EV transition is going to be too expensive. I repeat again, it's not because of labor cost. The last 10 years have been the most profitable in big three history. They've collectively made a quarter of a trillion dollars in North American profits over the last decade. On Tuesday and on Sunday, in another live address with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Fain stressed the ongoing corporate attacks on the working class in general, noting, for example, on both days that 26 multi-billionaires control half the world's wealth. On Tuesday, Fain reached back to almost a half century in UAW history. The working class in this country has been under attack in a one-sided class war for decades. Just as UAW President Doug Frazier wrote all the way back in 1978 when I was 10 years old, he stated, I quote, I believe leaders of the business community, with few exceptions, have chosen to wage a one-sided class war today in this country, a war against working people, the unemployed, the poor, the minorities, the very young, and the very old, and even many in the middle class of our society. End of quote. Those words are even more relevant today than they were in Fraser's time when I was 10 years old. Fain summed up where he saw the stance of Big Three management this way. 
The big three don't care about consumers or workers. They only worship at the altar of profit. That was UAW President Sean Fain speaking Tuesday in a publicly live-streamed address to the union and the world, calling for a strike authorization vote in case current contract negotiations with the big three automakers fall apart, and also promising to fight against corporate business as usual on behalf of the entire working class. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. The statistic of the week is 90,000 employees. That is the projected size of the increased labor force at the Internal Revenue Service. Carol Weidel reports. The New York Times reports that the Internal Revenue Service is getting bigger. A year after an $80 billion cash infusion, the agency has beefed up its staff to almost 90,000, a level not seen in more than a decade. Here's what this means. That is a stark change from recent years when budget cuts, outdated technology, and staff shortages helped create a pileup of tens of millions of tax returns. Last year, the agency held job fairs with the aim of hiring 10,000 employees to help clear the backlog. At the same time, the Biden administration was pushing to get more money to modernize the agency, but the effort quickly became mired in partisan politics. Republicans have largely opposed the added funding for the IRS, arguing that the agency will become empowered to harass small businesses and middle-class family. And this year, they managed to slash $20 billion of the new money. Lobbyists also attacked the Biden administration's plans because of a proposal for the IRS to create a free tax filing system. According to the IRS Commissioner Daniel Werfel, as the agency's staff has grown, it has also managed to reduce wait times during the most recent tax season and clear its formidable backlog with its bigger workforce. Going forward, he intends to focus on improving taxpayer services and cracking down on wealthy taxpayers. It was a myth, he said, that the IRS agents would be out to shake down the average taxpayers. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. On Wednesday, August 23rd, SEIU is hosting a tailgate rally and march during the Republican presidential debate. There will be a carpool, so meet at 33 Knob Hill Road, the WEAC building, at 1 p.m. Everyone is welcome to join us. Thank you for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm William Rogerberg. Thanks to editor Frank M. Speck, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Jaboski, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, editorial assistant Simon Gordon, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, web poster Anya Lee, and all our readers, and junior listener consultants Anthony and Maggie in Cross Plains, and the members of the IBEW Local 2304WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Rebecca Meyer Rao. We also like to thank all of gener- all our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT, Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor, Bill Clark. <laughs>